Welcome to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. We are now in the sermon series of Ezekiel, which is the story of a leader called to deal with catastrophe. When Israel was invaded by Babylon, Ezekiel found himself in exile, living among his displaced people who refused to see what was right before their eyes. God reveals his purposes in some of the most wild and unforgettable images in the Bible. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org. We are located off C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Let's pray. Father, we want to recognize the, the reality that your spirit is present in our midst because your body has gathered together. And Father, since you're here, we want to invite you to work on us this morning to uh, speak truth into our lives and into our hearts. And Father, I pray that we would respond. Uh, um, convict us where we need to be convicted and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Um, but don't let us leave here this morning, Father, untouched. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When you came in, hopefully you got a little piece of burlap. Um, it's to represent sackcloth. If you go into the Old Testament, you'll often read about references to sackcloth and ashes. Uh, to uh, bemoan national disasters, uh, to mark repentance and lament and grief over sin, Oftentimes, people would put on sackcloth and dump ashes on them. The sackcloth in the Old Testament was literally made of goat's hair. It was dark. It was incredibly scratchy. Uh, burlap is as close as we could come. And uh, I don't know if you realize this, but uh, believers in Jesus are called to be a repenting people. In other words, we're always to be looking at our lives uh, becoming aware of where we're falling short, confessing that, and doing repentance. In fact, when John the Baptist shows up, he, the first thing, words out of his mouth is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is to be true for us. So this morning, we're going to go on a journey into the depths of idolatry and end the morning with a time of repentance. That's where we're headed. Idolatry is simply the worship of other gods. It was the besetting sin of Israel. The problem is when we go into the Old Testament and we read about Israel's idolatry, it doesn't connect well for us. It involves statues and a bended knee. And my guess is we're not guilty of that. I mean, how many of you have shrines in your homes with little statues? Anybody visit a temple this last week? Typically, uh, <laughs> that's not the case. Um, so we think that it's really not a sin that impacts us. But the interesting thing, in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, God says that the elders of Israel have set up idols in their hearts. Uh, and that clues you in that uh, maybe something deeper is happening here, that maybe idolatry isn't just a matter of statues and a bended knee. Maybe, maybe it uh, uh, gets to the core of who we are in ways we might not expect. Maybe, maybe it's something we should wrestle with more than we do. 
I mean, uh, quite honestly, our idolatry is subtle, so we often ignore it. I mean, I've never had anybody come into my office and say, Nick, I'm just wrestling with idolatry and I can't, it's just getting the best of me. I can't seem to, that has never happened. But Timothy Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says that our hearts, the human heart, is an idol factory. And I think he's right. I think we are guilty of idolatry more than perhaps we'd like to ever admit. Idolatry happens when we give something else God's rightful place in our lives. When we give something else, anything else, God's rightful place in our lives, we're committing idolatry. And that something else can be all kinds of things. It can be a person, it can be a relationship, it can be a goal, it can be a a job, a desire, a want. Uh, You can fill in the blank. When anything takes the place of God in our lives, we're guilty of idolatry. We have been looking at the book of Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel is a prophet. Uh, who is living during a period of exile. Babylon has come in and attacked Israel and taken thousands of people from Jerusalem to Babylon. One of those thousands is Ezekiel. He is called to be a prophet, and a prophet is a seer. And the role of the seer is to tell the truth. Ezekiel has been called by God to tell the truth to Israel. He is going to give statements of judgment and statements of hope. That's his role. We're going to be looking at at chapter 8. And uh, at this point, Ezekiel has been, uh, well, it's about 14 months into his ministry when he has this this really interesting vision that explores the nature of Israel's idolatry. Let's kind of set the stage. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, that's September 17th, 592. The specific dates are given in Ezekiel so that people can go back and affirm his prophetic statements so that they know he was right. Anyway, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man from what appeared to be his waist down. He was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. This is the same vision he had before when he saw the glory of God in the chariot. You remember that in chapter one that Larry talked about? And from there, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and he took me by the hair of my head and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem. Um, he, he is having this vision. We don't know if he went to, into a trance or a catonic state, but he, he sees God, and God takes him almost like on a drone flight <laughs> to the temple of Jerusalem, and he's going to get a video tour that details kind of the idolatry that, that Israel is involved with, and we're going to kind of learn lessons about the nature and the characteristics of idolatry as we, we walk through this with him. A couple things to keep in mind. This vision is directed towards the people of God. It's easy to, to come to a passage like this where it talks about idolatry and look at our culture and point the finger out there and say, look what's going on in our country. Look what's going on in our culture. But to be honest, this passage is written so that we point the finger at ourselves. This is the people of God. 
And the idolatry is not taking place out there. It's taking place in the very temple, which was the, the institution of religion and worship for them. In the very courts where God dwelt, idolatry is taking place. It had seeped into the very fabric of their worship. So this is about the people of God. This is about us, about his church, about you and me. And we need to pay attention. Second thing I want you to keep in mind, <laughs> Ezekiel's crass. That's true throughout the whole book, but you'll see it even more so today. Part of the reason he's crass is he's talking to people who are not listening. And it's kind of like him stamping his foot. He's trying to get them to listen. So he becomes crass so that they pay attention. It's kind of like a, a wake-up call. And, and he wants us to capture how offensive what's going on is to God. Not just rationally, but, but emotionally. In fact, in this text, in chapter 8, he uses the word detestable six times. He, he says it's utterly detestable, even more detestable three times, wicked and detestable. I mean, it's just throughout this passage. And if you want to understand how God is reacting to what is taking place, you need to think about what is the most offensive thing that anybody could do to you. That, that, that's how God is feeling. Do you, do you remember back in 2008, there was an Iraqi journalist who took off his shoes and threw them at President Bush? That was incredibly offensive. In Middle Eastern culture, when you take off your shoe and throw it at somebody, it, it means you're disgusted and you loathe them. It's about the mo most uh, uh, disrespectful thing you can do. That's how God is reacting to what the Israelites are doing in his temple. Okay, we're going to look at, uh, at four scenes of idolatry and then a fifth scene of a conversation and draw out of that lessons to learn. Scene one, he stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and the visions of God. And in the visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood and there before me was the glory of the God of Israel as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Then he said to me, son of man, look towards the north. So I looked and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy and he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see things that are even more detestable. Now, it may be helpful to visualize the, the temple. So we've got a little diagram here. The temple was a place of worship. Um, inside of it was the Holy of Holies. That is a place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the very presence of God, God dwelt in, in a, a, a way. Uh, it was separated from the holy place and then outside was the the upper court, and then an inner court, and then an outer court. So all these scenes of idolatry are taking place in this temple. And I'm going to show you a diagram of this. One of the interesting things is these scenes of idolatry take place. Each one gets closer and closer to the holy of holies, and in a sense becomes more and more offensive to God. Now this, this first scene takes place at this, this is north. This is the northern gate. Uh, um, he's going to see the, the idol that provokes to jealousy here. Then he's going to dig through a wall to what we think may be a room around this area. 
uh, and have a vision of 70 elders. And then he's going to come into this inner court and see women mourning the god Tammuz. And then the last scene, he sees 25 men lined up on the porch. And either God, is, god and Ezekiel are here or inside looking out. So four scenes, each one closer and closer to the Holy of Holies. So this first scene, um, he, he uh, comes across the, this God that provokes jealousy. If you can bring up the next slide. Then he said to me, son of man, look towards the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? Utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing. Uh, that will drive me from my sanctuary. So what is this idol of jealousy? We're, we're not actually sure. We think that it may be an, an Asherah pole or the goddess Astarte. That uh, goddess was a Canaanite fertility goddess. And uh, an Asherah pole or an Asherah idol was, was simply a phallic symbol. We know that earlier on in the reign of Manasseh, he actually set up one of these Asherah poles in the temple. Josiah, later king, comes along and cleanses the temple. But evidently, in Ezekiel's time, they had brought the idol back in. And it's interesting how the idol is described. Literally, it says provokes jealousy, but literally it's the idol of jealousy of jealousy. In other words, this idol is provoking God's passion. He reacts. The first thing we we learn about idolatry is simply that idolatry makes God jealous. And when we think of that, we go, but wait a second. We, we have this notion that jealousy is kind of this immature emotion, an immature reaction. But actually, if you think about what jealousy is, it's a very legitimate emotional response of anger to the violation or betrayal of love. And what this passage is telling us is that when we allow something else to take God's place in our life, God responds as if he's hurt, as if he's, he, he's jealous. It, it provokes him and his passion. And the truth is, is God has every right to expect to be the priority, the take the place of preeminence in our lives for a host of reasons. One, he, he created us and designed us, and we find our fulfillment and meaning in serving him. Two, he's the one who has redeemed us. In other words, he sent his son to die for us so that we could be in a relationship with him. Uh, he, he, he's paid a huge price for us. And three, when we committed our lives to Christ, we, we made this covenant, this, this kind of contract with God where we pledged to him our allegiance. So when we turn our attention to something else rather than him, uh, it, it is a betrayal. I think sometimes we miss this because uh, when, when we invite Jesus into our hearts, uh, into our lives, we think of it as if our heart is like the boardroom of our lives. And, you know, there, there's a nice table and leather chairs and water and, and sitting around the table are all the different aspects of ourselves. You know, there are our social self and our private self and our work self and our sexual self and our family self. And, and we have this vision that all those parts of us are the vying for control and making decisions. And sometimes when we invite Jesus into that, we think what we've done is invited him to be part of the committee, to take a place and a seat at the table. 
But, but when you commit your life to Christ, that's not what you're, you know, you're not simply giving him a seat at the table. When you invite Jesus into your life, what you're, you're asking him to do is to kick out all the other idols. He doesn't want a seat at the table. He wants to be the sole chairman of the board. He wants to be the one who has control and makes decisions. It's about him. So anytime we turn our attention away from him, it is an act of betrayal. What is really interesting to me about this, as I don't think about this much, the reality is, is God has an emotional attachment to us such that he wants our devotion and he wants our love. And when we give that love to something else, that devotion, that place of preeminence, he's crushed, he's brokenhearted, he's hurt. In other words, our relationship with God is not just this uh, rational exchange. God loves us and loves us with his emotion such that he feels betrayed. I like what uh, Christopher Wright in the message of Ezekiel writes. He says, the sin of the world generates God's grief and anger. It is the sin of God's own people that produces God's jealousy. When we profess loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, to whose self-giving love we owe our salvation, but then live lives that are absorbed with the priorities and the idolatries of the world around us, there is something detestable, ungrateful, and treacherous about that. It's a betrayal. It's a betrayal. Scene two. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall and he said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. So there's this picture of him digging into this wall, clearing out a hole that he can go through. So I dug in the wall and I saw a doorway there and he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and I looked and I saw betrayed all over the walls, all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals. All these idols and depictions of idols on the wall, these creepy things, uh, animals. These were the gods of Egypt that they are worshiping. And it's, it's really interesting how he describes them. It says the crawling things and the unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. And that word there for idol is a word that literally means uh, pieces of excrement. Let me put it in the vernacular, piles of poop, okay? Get this picture in your mind. These guys are kneeling down before piles of poop and worshiping crap. At first, we kind of chuckle at that. I mean, I did when I read that, it cracked me up. And then I realized, wait, this is here for a reason. Ezekiel's being crass because he wants us to understand how repugnant, how distasteful, how vulgar, how detestable what they're doing is. And I think there's a kind of a subtle message here as well. You know, 
the things that become idols to us, we, we, we tend to see them as incredibly valuable, right? That's why, we, that's why they, they, they attract our worship because we, we think they're so important. And God is saying, wait, wait a second. I want you to know from my perspective, those things that take your heart away from me, from my perspective, they're just crap. That's how important they are in the big picture of things. Just piles of poop. He, he, he goes on. In front of them stood the 70 elders of Israel. Now this goes back to Exodus chapter 24. You remember Moses went up on the mountain of Sinai and he took with him the 70 elders, the, the religious leaders, the political leaders uh, of Israel. And they entered into this covenant relationship with God where they promised God his obedience and exclusive worship. So this is the same uh, group obviously different people, but they're representative of Israel. And what is going on here is kind of a political, religious kind of thing. They're worshiping the gods of Egypt because they're being attacked by Babylon. And they're hoping that if they worship the gods of Egypt, then perhaps the armies of Egypt will come to their defense and they'll be safe. They'll be safe. Then it says, and Jahazaniah, son of Shephan, was standing among them. Um, this is kind of an intrusion in the text. Jahazaniah is the name of a man that Ezekiel recognizes. His name means God listens. And we'll find out later in the text that actually God is not listening. It's a bit of irony that Ezekiel throws in. Jahazaniah, God listens, is in your midst, but God ain't listening to you. At all. Goes on. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. You can understand why they needed the incense. He said to them, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness? It's completely dark in there. Each one at the shrine of his own idol. They, they're, they're in their own little cubicle, worshiping their pile of poop. And they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. <laughs> Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. And there's a bit of irony here. Here these people are saying, oh, God doesn't see us. And all the time, God is standing there with Ezekiel, watching. And God is leaning over to Ezekiel and saying, they don't think I can see them but I can. <laughs> a couple of things we learn about idolatry from this. The first is idolatry is never a hidden sin. We think that because idolatry is a sin of the heart, uh, no one knows. No one sees into our heart. But that's not true. In God's perspective, there are no closed doors. In God's perspective, there, are, there is no darkness. From God's perspective, he sees into the very, the very core of our being. We, we think if we, we keep our act together publicly, then we're good, right? Uh, we have it together. If, if we manage what people can see, and we tend to forget that, well, it's more than that. God can see everything. He sees inside of us, inside our heart, inside our mind. He knows what we're really like, what our true priorities are, what our true allegiances are. He knows. 
But we forget that. We kind of put God out of our mind at times. You know, sometimes the presence of God is a very comforting thing. And sometimes the presence of God is absolutely terrifying. But we live in his presence. You know, <laughs> have you ever played peekaboo with a little baby? <laughs> you know, you hide your eyes and go, peekaboo! And the baby chuckles and smiles and then you put him back and do it again, peekaboo! And, and you go, what is so funny? I mean, babies just love that. Well, developmental psychologists will tell you the reason they like it is babies don't have any object permanence. In other words, when you put your hands in front of your face, you disappear from their world. So when you take your hands away, it's a surprise. I didn't know you were there. <laughs> and we, we do that with God, right? <laughs> he can't see what I'm really doing. He doesn't know what's really inside me. He can't figure out what I'm thinking. <gasps> oh, wait. You knew. God knows. I might as well just be honest with him. Because he knows. The second thing we learn from this, not only is idolatry never a hidden sin, but idolatry uh, provides a false security. You see, God wasn't measuring up to their expectations. I mean, Babylon was getting the best of them. And they were thinking, uh, we need to find something else to trust and protect us. Maybe it's the Egyptians and their armies. And you see, the Israelites had made a fundamental miscalculation. They thought that, Larry mentioned this last week, they thought their problem was the Babylonians. And if it was the Babylonians, then the Egyptians were the answer. But they had miscalculated. Their problem was not the Babylonians. And the answer wasn't the Egyptians. Their problem was God. And it didn't matter if you got the armies of the Egyptians to eliminate the Babylonians. That didn't do anything with the real issue, which was their idolatry before the living God. And they were experiencing his judgment. But they were trying to find their security in something else. And I wonder sometimes if we do that. We, we, we proclaim our allegiance and our trust in God, but then we really turn to other things because we're scared. Uh, we're worried that maybe God won't come through. So we kind of hedge our bet just a bit. And we kind of keep God in the picture, but we actually put our trust and our security in other things in our bank account or our insurance policies or our retirement just in case the sovereign God of the universe who created everything with his word can't deliver. I like what Christopher Wright writes about this. He says, we proclaim our covenant loyalty to the living God. We put our lives under his protection and affirm his sovereign power and we sing songs about his great faithfulness and our eternal security. And yet so often in real life, we act as though we had no confidence in God at all for our future. Instead, we expend enormous amounts of material and emotional resources on fixing things up for ourselves. It is well worth regularly checking where we have drawn the line between the wisdom that makes a prudent provision for the future for ourselves and our families and the idolatry 
that builds all our hope and security on the modern equivalents of the God and the armies of Egypt. Next scene. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And I saw women sitting there mourning the god Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. Um, the god of Tammuz, we, we think, is a god that Babylonian women uh, like to worship and mourn over. Tammuz... Uh, was uh, listed on the king's list. And the myth around Tammuz was that he was a shepherd king that lived for 36,000 years. And then his wife uh, and him got into a fight and she cast him to the netherworld where he lost his power. So women would gather and worship Tammuz, uh, a dead god in a sense, in hopes that, well, he was a god of death and resurrection, a god of death and rebirth. Remember, they're in this time where God's not answering them and delivering them, and they're the ultimate consumers, so they're looking for something else to give them what ultimately only God can give them. There's a bit of irony here, right? They're worshiping, they're part of a death cult, and they're worshiping the God who is dead, hoping that he bring rebirth, and they're doing that in the courts, in the temple of the living God. It's just so ironic. Uh, we learn from that that idolatry um, always disappoints. Always disappoints. You see, oftentimes what happens is um, we we have this tendency to 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 look to something other than God to give us what only God can give. So we want peace, or we want meaning, or we want significance, or we want forgiveness, or we want uh, fulfillment. And, and God isn't delivering the way that we would like him to deliver. So, so we begin to look for other things to give us what we forget that only God can ultimately give. Those ultimate things only come out of a relationship with him. I mean, we might find them temporarily in other things, but they never last. They will always disappoint I mean, we think, oh, I mean, if I could just be in the right relationship, if I could just find the right person, or if I could just be in, in, in a marriage, you know, where, where we're soulmates, if I, if I could just get the, the, the perfect job or that great promotion, then life would be grand. If I could just live in the, oh, the right neighborhood with the right house, if I could just make so, uh, so much money, you know, life would... No, it doesn't work that way. You can get all that stuff and your soul will still be empty because what you're looking for, those things can't deliver. And in fact, when you look for a relationship or a job or a thing to deliver that kind of ultimate good in your life, it's too much weight for it to bear. It will disappoint you. See, that's part of the temptation when it comes to idolatry. We take good things, good things, and we make them into ultimate things. And when we make them into ultimate things, they become idols in our lives. And because they're only good things, not ultimately things, they will disappoint. They will. Next scene. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord 
And they're at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men. With their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. Let's look back at the temple for a moment. What he's saying is we we think God and Ezekiel are either standing around this area or in the, the inside of the temple itself. And there's a group of 25 men who are standing in this porch area, this portico area. And they've lined up, and, and the temple is oriented so that this is the north, this is the south, this is the west, and this is the east. So, so these guys are, are on the temple, and uh, God is at their back in the west, and they're facing the sun in the east, and they're bowing down. And, and Ezekiel describes them as turning their back on God. But the word that he uses for back is a word that describes the hind end of cattle. In other words, a cow's butt. Now, are you getting the picture? They're facing the east. They're bowing down. And they're showing their butt to God. They're worshiping the sun and they're mooning him. You go, well, you can't, you can't do that to God. Well, it's a stupid thing to do to God, but you can do it. And here's the interesting thing. You, you, you see, we like to think that idolatry is a both-end proposition, that we can worship God and money, or God and power, or God and sex, or God and our job, or God and our family, or God, God and anything. We think we can just kind of line them up, and, and as long as we, we kind of give God the edge, we're okay. But the truth is, it doesn't work that way. They're, they're not both out there. They're like this, east and west. And, and if you're going to worship money, you can worship money, but don't think that at the same time you're worshiping God. You've automatically turned your butt to him. Because you can't worship two things. God wants exclusive allegiance. He wants to be God alone. And anything less than that is offensive to him. But we try to get away with it all the time. And we lie to ourselves We lie to ourselves because we think, oh, yeah, I can handle both. I can keep God the priority and still be about money. I can keep God the priority and still be about lust or power or job. But they're like this. It's an either or, not a both end proposition. Idolatry always turns its back on God. Last scene is actually a conversation that is taking place now between God and Ezekiel, and it's fascinating. He said to me, have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? This word here for violence is the Hebrew word hamaz, and it's an umbrella word And it's a word that represents all kinds of social oppression. And what God is saying here is that when the people give themselves over to idolatry, idolatry leaks. 
In other words, idolatry is like acid, and you bring it into your life, and it begins to corrode everything and eat through everything and destroy relationships, and it ultimately results in more and more sin creeping into your life because when you're committed to idolatry, you've given uh, God's place to something else, and ultimately what you're doing is putting yourself there, and then life becomes about you, and you care about others less, and you're less concerned about compassion and love and the other, and it's all about you and your tribe. And it has this ripple effect in our lives, in the lives of the community, and the lives of the people of God. And he just uses this umbrella term. But what's interesting, if you go over to Ezekiel chapter 22, he begins to describe the sins of violence in particular. And it is a fascinating passage. This is just some of what he describes that is taking place in Israel, what they're guilty of. Because of their idolatry, they're oppressing the foreigner. They're mistreating the fatherless and the widow. In other words, the single mom and her kids. They're despising sacred things. They're lying, slandering, disregarding the truth. They practiced all kinds of sexual immorality, and the breadth of their immorality is unbelievable in that chapter. They've rigged the financial system so that it benefits the rich and takes advantage of the poor. So the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. They accepted bribes. They denied people justice. They shed blood. And they neglected the poor. And what's really troubling as you go through chapter 22, you begin to understand, if we could keep on the list, um, you begin to understand that the prophets of that day began to, to whitewash this kind of behavior, to ignore it and to condone it and to pretend that it wasn't really taking place and then participated in it. And God gets more and more angry. Folks, what, what troubles me is that's a list that's very applicable to our culture. And what I see happening in the church oftentimes is that we're condoning that kind of thing for a political agenda and ignoring its reality in our midst. And when we do that, we're in danger of God's judgment. We're in danger of God's judgment. Back to the verse. The last thing we see here in this conversation is a, a bit of a glimpse into God's emotional reaction to all that is taking place in Israel. Let's look at it again. He says, have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they do? You know, we think idolatry is just a little thing. I mean, we're all guilty of it at times, so it's, it's just one of the realities of life. Just a small thing. But to God, it is not a small thing. It is the thing. It's at the very core of our relationship with him. It's not trivial in the least. It's not a little deal. It's a big deal. It's the deal from God's perspective. And notice, this is how it makes him feel. At the end, it says, look at them, putting the branch to their nose. 
It's a very obscure phrase. Commentators think that it's referencing a, an obscene gesture. In other words, God feels like they're flipping him off, giving him the middle finger, disrespecting him, insulting him. Folks, when we get involved in idolatry, no matter how trivial and small, we're flipping God off. That's how he feels. And if you haven't picked this up, folks, it's a terrifying thing to flip God off. Notice how God responds. Verse 18, he says, therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Jehazaniah may be named God listens, but I got news for you, I ain't listening. It's become so bad. You know, God respects our dignity. He's basically saying, if you want to worship idols, go for it. I will not stop you. God is the great allower. But understand what we're bringing on ourselves because he then turns us over to our own consequences. Here's a list of how God responds. And you see these in the next passage, chapter 9 and chapter 10. God becomes angry. He becomes reluctant to listen. He brings judgment on his people. In chapter 9, there's six warriors that show up with deadly weapons. And they begin to go through Jerusalem and they begin to, to kill everyone. It's terrifying. And what's even more terrifying, in, verse, in chapter 10, God slowly, slowly, hold on a sec, God slowly leaves the temple. God, God is simply saying, look, if you don't want to worship me, I'm not going to force you to worship me. But if you're not going to give me my proper place, then I'm out of here. I will depart and I will abandon you. That's a sobering thing. So, so what do you do? Well, Ezekiel gives us a glimmer of hope. Chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, with the six warriors that come with deadly weapons, there's a seventh man. Then the Lord called the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark, a towel in the Hebrew, on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in it. In other words, God says, look, there are some people in the city who, who repent, who grieve and lament, which are the marks of repentance, right? There's some people in the city who get it. They're putting on sackcloth and ashes, And God says, there's hope. You go through the city and you put a a mark, a a towel, which is a slanted T, a Hebrew uh, T in the alphabet. Put that mark on their foreheads and they will be spared. In other words, the only proper response to our idolatry is repentance. 
That's when I began this morning. I said we are called to be people of continual repentance. Because like it or not, we all at times get entangled in idolatry. So this morning I want to end by doing two things. I want to give you a moment to, to kind of take a video tour of your own life and your own heart and look behind the closed doors and in the inner recesses. And take a moment, I mean, grab this rough thing, take a moment and think about the things that grate against God in your life. And then we're going to end with a, a, a response of confession. So if you want to bow your heads and reflect for a little bit, um, do that now and then I'll have a stand in a moment in confession. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.